So back uh, two, three years ago, um, when we witnessed the uh, jihadist blitzkrieg around um, northern Iraq and southern Syria, how do you account for the fact that the jihadists made such relatively easy inroads throughout many of these Sunni areas of Syria and Iraq? Well, the, the circumstances in Syria were different from Iraq, but I'll, I'll talk Iraq. Um, it's a bit of a truism in counterinsurgency theory that um, insurgencies collapse slowly and states collapse suddenly, right? So things look okay on the surface. Things seem to be uh, functioning, but you see increasing weakness and um, sort of hollowness in the security structure or in the political consensus, and then suddenly you get a, a quick collapse, and that's very much what happened uh, in, uh, in Iraq. Really, the, it was coming for a long period of time, probably from at least the middle of 2011, that the consensus that we've been able to hammer together between Sunni populations and the government in Baghdad had basically failed, and we saw a much more sectarian, Shia supremacist set of policies coming out of Baghdad that radically alienated people across uh, the Sunni parts of Iraq. There was, there's a town called Hawija, which is on the main road between Mosul and uh, Syria, was the scene of a major massacre by, is, uh, by um, Iraqi security forces against Sunni protesters in 2013, which was televised almost in full and generated what amounted to an Arab Spring within uh, Iraq. And it was on the back of that that the very large, capable armed group from Syria broke back into Iraq and, and started mounting the, the Blitzkrieg. One other thing that we've seen from, um, from ISIS that is relevant not only in Iraq and Syria but in Afghanistan is the use of terrorism to shape military and police forces to make it easier for them to mount a conventional attack. So in the fall of Mosul, they'd mounted maybe six months of increasing terrorist activity consciously trying to lock the Iraqis down into a garrison mentality where they ended up guarding key points and vulnerable intersections and, and creating a, a lay down that was all checkpoints and, um, uh, and guard posts, which alienated and pissed off the population, but it also fixed them in locations where they were guarding things. They didn't have a significant reserve and they weren't able to maneuver. And then on the 10th of June, 2014, 800 ISIS guys with tanks turned up on the side of the city and took the city in a day because they, the Iraqis were not able to react because they'd been pinned in this uh, defensive laydown. And I think we've seen similar things like that uh, elsewhere. So yeah, it's, 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 it's fairly complicated, but yeah. Some scholars would argue that the reason why many of these Sunni towns uh, two to three years ago, like Mosul, uh, Raqqa, uh, Ramadi, Fallujah, the reason why they fell is because the folks living in these towns, predominantly Sunni Muslims, were more afraid of the sectarian regime in Baghdad than the Sunni jihadists themselves. In other words, here's the question, to what extent have sectarian regimes that are allied with Iran, thinking of Damascus and Baghdad, to what extent have they been more interested in seeking revenge against the Sunnis rather than building a nation? Well, certainly that was a dynamic in Nouri al-Maliki's uh, Dawa party and in the, the way that he approached governing Iraq after the Americans left. Um, and the loss of American uh, leverage meant that there was many fewer checks on that, that behavior, which was all, always there uh, after we left. Um, 
I'm wary of sort of single overarching explanations. You know, I think it's, it's a pretty complicated uh, region. But I think uh, it's certainly true that part of the, the driver of what we saw in Iraq and to some extent in Syria was regimes not governing with the interests of a large section of the population and alienating that population. What we've seen since then though with Haider al-Abadi and with the um, um, Defence Minister al-Abadi and others is an attempt to really try to be more inclusive and to walk back from that. It hasn't fully worked, uh, but it certainly is uh, better than it was under Maliki. Because a lot of the Sunnis who leave these towns after they've been liberated from Sunni jihadists, uh, there is evidence from Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International that they do get discriminated against by not just the Iraqi army, uh, but also the Shia militia. I oh, know it's worse than that. I mean, there, there, there have been whole towns depopulated and the population expelled in a sort of Bosnian-style ethnic cleansing uh, around Tikrit. This happened uh, in 2015. We saw it to some extent around Ramadi. Um, that's one of the big worries about what's going on in Mosul right now, that there may be significant ethnic cleansing uh, in the aftermath of the assault. Um, I think that's a valid concern with respect to the popular mobilisation units, the Shia militia. Um, it's not such a concern with, with the Iraqi army and in fact the way that the attack on Mosul has been structured has been very carefully um, put together to try to minimise the possibility for that, but it's still a very real risk and more importantly it's in the minds of a lot of Sunnis that this might happen. Um, I don't think that makes them support ISIS, it just makes them worry about what happens next. Yeah. I was talking to uh, Professor Joshua Landis from uh, the University of Oklahoma, he's one of America's, probably the West's leading expert on Syria, certainly one of them. And he was just making the point that, irony of ironies, the Russian-led air campaign against the uh, Islamic State or the Sunni rebellion in Syria, and particularly in East Aleppo, and the US-led air campaign in Mosul and um, Ramadi and Fallujah, in a weird way, they're doing the same thing. That is, they're propping up Iranian-backed, Shia-aligned sectarian regimes and in the process, further marginalising the Sunni populations in these countries and perhaps inadvertently making the terror problem worse. How would you respond to Landis? Yeah, I think um, if Bashar al-Assad were here, he wouldn't claim not to be sectarian, but to be secular. Um, uh, if you look at the sheer numbers though, uh, at this point in the campaign, the regime has killed about nine and a half times as many Syrians as the jihadists have. Let's get that right. So the Assad regime has killed nearly 10 times as many people as yeah, the jihadists as have in Syria. In Syria, wow. yeah. So if you're, a, if you're an ordinary, ordinary Syrian, the regime is much more of a serious threat to you than, uh, the, uh, than the jihadist groups. Um, so I think there's certainly a lot of truth to that with respect to, 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 to Syria. When the Russians intervened in Syria, it's important to recognise they weren't intervening against the Islamic State. They were, interfering in favor, they were intervening in favour of the regime. So they were basically targeting whichever groups were most threatening to the regime. And that was not Islamic State. It was mainly the secular uh, and, um, and Kurdish groups. So they, those bore the brunt of the initial uh, intervention. But over time they switched to, to more focus uh, on Islamic State. Um, but to a general point though, I think Josh has got a, a good point, which is if you think about the jihadists, right? They are fighting a, a war in both Iraq and in Syria against both incumbent regimes. The Russians are backing both incumbent regimes against both insurgencies. 
The Iranians are backing both incumbents against both insurgencies. We're the only player that's backing one incumbent against an insurgent and backing another that's insurgent right. against the incumbent, right? So we're, we're uh, on opposite sides of an imaginary line in the middle of the desert. We are playing two sides because of the Because we've been supporting the Sunni rebellion in, when I say we, the West has been supporting the Sunni rebellion in Syria, but we've more or less been against the Sunnis in Iraq, yes. clearly putting it. That's right. Now we've gotten ourselves into, and again, you know, like, Donald Trump may not be your preferred change agent yeah. to fix that problem, but uh, someone's got to change because it's not working. Um, in August, September of last year, Putin decided to uh, escalate the, well, intervene in Syria. And at the time, President Obama said this would be a quagmire for Russia. Mm -hmm. Has the Russian intervention, to what extent has that changed the balance of power in Syria and the broader war against Islamic State jihadists? Oh, it's totally transformed the war in Syria. Um, if the Russians had not intervened, there would be no Bashar al-Assad regime today. Is that a fact? Yeah, they saved the regime. There's no doubt about Which, that. Which, in a way, would have been supporting the US policy of regime change in Damascus. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, the regime was on the point of collapsing um, a year ago. And what would have happened if the Assad regime fell down late last year? I think probably chaos. I don't think we would have seen the emergence of, you know, Jeffersonian democracy in Syria. <laughs> but but I, I think um, what you would have seen would, would have been uh, significant um, gains being made by a coalition of jihadist nationalist groups. Ara al-Sham is one. Another is a group that at that time was known as... Um, Jabhat al-Nusra, now called Jabhat Fatah al-Sham, sorry for the Arabic names, but it's, it's the Al-Qaeda ally in uh, Syria. And the head of the, that organization has been extraordinarily careful to portray himself as first a nationalist and a Syrian and focused on getting rid of Assad. And then we can all sit down, uh, you know, smoke the hooker and talk about how we're gonna make, you know, what structure Syria is gonna be. In fact, they are just as jihadist as uh, ISIS, they just don't put it on television. Uh, the best estimates uh, suggest that there have been 400,000 deaths in the Syrian civil war over the last five and a half years, uh, 7 million refugees, these are the best estimates at least. Uh, thanks to the Russian intervention, is Assad now on the cusp of winning the civil war? And what does that mean? What does the end of the civil war in Syria really mean? I, I don't think the war is going to go away anytime soon. I don't think that Assad is on the, on the verge of winning it. Um, and I don't think that's the Russian objective. The Russians aren't there. And again, this is why what we do tends to turn into quagmires and what the Russians have done hasn't turned into a quagmire. Because we go in, we try to not only defeat an enemy, but also to stabilize, to govern, to stand up a democratic system, to re restore the, the functioning economy. And that's a huge, you know, multi-decade effort that takes vast amounts of troops. Uh, the, the Russians aren't interested in that. What they're interested in is propping up the regime and creating what I would call a, fr a frozen conflict in Syria, much like we've seen in Ukraine and elsewhere. Their geostrategic interests are a friendly government in, in Damascus and control over the Tartus naval base, which is their only Mediterranean naval base, and a certain amount of hinterland beyond that, but not necessarily the whole country. And in fact, the idea of Syria now is kind of meaningless, right? The Sarkspico Treaty boundaries that were established after the First World War, it's highly unlikely that they'll be re-established anytime soon. Uh, and so the Russians aren't there trying to do what we tried to do in Iraq or in Afghanistan. They're just trying to carve out a, a buffer zone around the areas that matter to them and hold that. And I think they can very well achieve that. Before we go to the audience, let's talk about Donald Trump because he's obviously the man in the moment. Not many of us predicted him uh, his victory yesterday, and many of us so-called experts are wiping egg off our faces, and I'm one of them. 
But um, it seems to me, David, that Trump and Sanders, Bernie Sanders, the socialist who gave uh, Hillary Clinton a real run for her money in the Democratic primaries, when they questioned the US penchant for promoting democracy, uh, subsidising US allies, um, the, the military interventions in the Middle East, they met a receptive audience all too often. Question, to what extent do you think the American people are war-weary and tired of the world? Well, I think I, I would point out that, you know, the US project of global primacy was really founded on things like the alliance system, um, the, um, the spread of global norms favorable to the United States, the, um, the Bretton Woods uh, financial institutions, the, originally the UN, although that, that sort of changed over time, uh, and the alliance system, ANZUS, NATO, and so on. All those things are elite level projects, right? You don't have, have working class whites in the middle of Pennsylvania in the 1950s getting all excited about the Marshall Plan, right? These, these were things that were done by elites. Um, and I don't think that the average guy in the States hates or likes those projects particularly well. I think what you're seeing here is much more focus on the failure of the American economy and political uh, system mm. to deliver what people need. And it's a, it's a sort of middle finger to the establishment. And it so happens that this is, this is part of the, uh, the backlash. Yeah, I mean, uh, next month marks the 25th anniversary since the collapse of the Soviet Union. If you go back to the late 80s and early 90s, there was a consensus in the West that we were on the cusp of the end of history. You know, Francis Fukuyama's end point of humankind's ideological evolution, the universalization of Western liberal democracy. But the United States over the last 25 years has been at war for 22 out of those 25 years is arguably, especially hearing you tonight, there's no end in sight, even under a Trump presidency. And many people might say the results have been disastrous, especially in the Middle East. Has the notion of American global leadership been dealt a cruel blow as a result of these interventions in the Middle East? Yeah, it's a complex question. There's a guy called Stephen Sestanovich who uh, is at a think tank in, in the States who's written a book called Maximalist, where he starts a sort of history of American foreign policy with the Truman administration. And the point that he makes is that there's a cycle, right? There's like a sine wave where you get a maximalist, interventionist, often quite martial uh, presidency, followed by a period of, of, of lesser intervention and a sort of pulling back. Uh, and he tries to characterize the different regimes or the different uh, administrations since the 40s on that, on that scale. I think the book's great. I think it's worth having a read. Um, and I, I think he makes some very good points. But actually, I think that he starts the timeline too late. This, this pattern didn't start in 1947. Uh, if you go back to the middle of the 19th century and the Mexican war mm. in the United States, mm. and you run a timeline forward from there to now, you actually see a very consistent pattern where the US does a large scale or long duration intervention in about a, a decade, and then spends about 20 years backing off from that with a light footprint trying to avoid getting into any more conflicts. And then I guess forgets how much the big ones suck, you know, and get, gets back into it. And that pattern seems to be extraordinarily consistent and also totally unaffected by policymakers' preferences, right? I mean, um, you know, Lyndon Johnson gets into 1964 with a policy that doesn't really include putting 600,000 troops into Vietnam, but it happens anyway, yeah. you know. Uh, and I think that there's a there's kind of a deep cycle that goes on uh, in terms of interventions. We are clearly right now at the bottom of that sine wave, mm. and I don't think there's any prospect that. Donald Trump any more than President Obama 
is likely to put hundreds of thousands of troops on the ground. Yeah. If you're worried about Syria, that's a huge issue, right? Let's imagine that peace breaks out tonight and that the, the, the war in Syria you know, doesn't, doesn't last until tomorrow. You still have, as you said, 7 million refugees, 400,000 dead, half the country is destroyed, most of the cities aren't functioning anymore. You're probably looking at a 20 to 30 year rebuilding effort just to get Syria back to being a functioning country. And probably five or 600,000 peacekeepers or some other kind of stabilization force to make that happen. Who's gonna do that? It won't be the West. It certainly won't be the United States. Um, so who would it be? There are people that have ideas on that. I have a couple myself. Um, I think that um, it may well be Syrians currently in Europe that are, that are part of that rebuilding. But um, the point is that the model of large scale, long duration Western intervention even in the best possible circumstances, it isn't going to fix the problem we're dealing with in Syria. So again, I think it's time for a rethink. I'm not necessarily a pro-Trump or pro-Hillary person, but I think we, what we have been doing hasn't been working. The general consensus about Trump is that he lacks a core governing philosophy, whether it be at home or abroad, <clears throat> and that he's erratic, uh, strikingly ignorant of the world, that he shoots from the hip. It's a deadly combination. Um, during the campaign, the very long campaign, he was saying on the one hand that America doesn't have a dog in this fight between the Shia militia and the Sunni jihadists and that Western interventions all too often make a bad situation worse. But then he'll also say that he will wipe out ISIS. What do you make of Donald Trump and what do you think he will do generally with respect to the Middle East? Um, this is going to sound a bit weird if you haven't been in Afghanistan, but he reminds me a lot of an Afghan tribal elder. Um, uh, we used to joke when I worked in Afghanistan that you can trust Afghans 100% to follow their own interest. Right? Other than that, you can't trust them at all. Um, and I think the hard thing with Afghan tribal elders is figuring out what is their interest in the moment, right? Yeah. And, and how are they going to act? And I think with, with respect to, to Donald Trump, he does have a central core governing philosophy. It's Donald Trump, right? <laughs> and uh, what's good for him is good for the, the country, right? And so I think um, it is possible to see the outlines of what that presidency would look like. It would be a bit more isolationist, it would be mercantilist, it would focus on uh, the economic outcomes of uh, alliance relationships, it would be much less inclined to engage in uh, military intervention, certainly much less inclined to engage in foreign assistance. Um, and I think we'd, we'd see some fairly predictable um, outcomes. What I don't think is directly predictable from the campaign though is what Donald Trump's foreign policy establishment looks like. So most of the Republican national security and diplomatic establishment rejected Donald Trump very early. Most of them went to Hillary. Uh, some didn't, some stayed out of, of, of both camps. Um, that, to my mind, it represents how much of a continuity candidate Hillary was. She was literally the conservative candidate in terms of uh, foreign policy. Um, now, in just the last 24 hours, all these people who were clutching their pearls and, and hyperventilating about Trump 24 hours ago are now crawling back to, uh, right. to try to be part of the administration. Yeah. So I think what you're going to find, uh, amusing as it may be, is that actually a lot of that talent that existed in the Republican Party will come back to him and you may find that he's got um, some fairly decent um, people to draw on. The other thing is that the US governing system is based on checks and balances. I suspect those checks and balances are going to operate in a much more robust fashion as far as Donald Trump is concerned than it would have for Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think you're gonna find he's actually constrained a bit and is able to draw on some talent. Also, as of tomorrow, he starts to get the full unadulterated 
uh, top secret intelligence briefings, and there's nothing like getting those briefings to change your. Uh, he meets, uh, yeah, that's right. He meets President Obama in the Oval Office uh, yeah. overnight our time. We'll start taking some questions. So think about it. Just before we get the mics all ready, a question just on the uh, U.S.-Australia relationship, if you don't mind my asking. Uh, John Howard's on the ABC 7:30 report this evening, uh, making the point that the. Um, the US alliance is above and beyond any one individual, whether it's the president or the prime minister, supporting Donald, Malcolm Turnbull's remarks that uh, uh, normal programming will resume, that we should cut the new American president some slack. But not everyone agrees with Howard and Turnbull. Um, today in the Sydney Morning Herald, Peter Harcher, uh, Peter Jennings from Aspie have said that the Trump victory represents a crisis in US-Australia relations, and Jennings goes so far as to say, we desperately need a plan B. How would you respond to that? Well, actually, Greg was nice enough to mention that I, that I was a visiting fellow at, at CIS about 10 years ago, and when I was here, I actually wrote a paper on this. Um, you may want to look it up on the website, but uh, I, I wrote about Australian strategic culture and how we have tended to pursue uh, our grand strategy over the last century or so. And the point that I made in that paper is, Australia is an island, it's a maritime trading nation, but it's, it's, it's never going to be one of the um, most populous or, or, or largest countries on the planet. By the way, we have a larger GDP than Russia does, but you know, it's, um, it, uh, and so for about a, a century, Australian grand strategy has tended to be about recognising that we can't be secure in an insecure global environment. It's been about identifying the power or the powers that best reflect our values and then trying to align with that power to jointly secure the, the global environment to make Australia secure. So until from 1901 until 1942, that global power was the British Empire. Mm -hmm. From 1942 onward, it has tended to be the United States. There was a period in the 80s and the early 90s where briefly we seemed to be making, wanting to make that the United Nations rather than the United States. Uh, but I think the general theme is fairly consistent, which is we look for the global power that best reflects our values and we try to partner up with them to secure the environment. The question is, does Donald Trump represent a departure from American values or just a reinterpretation of American interests globally? Frankly, I don't think we know the answer to that yet. Um, so I, I would like to think that the, that the alliance remains the bedrock of Australian grand strategy precisely because we still are the country that we've been for the last century, and because America still represents the closest thing to uh, our values out there globally. But you know, we've talked about this global wave of populism and the changing dynamics in Europe and, and elsewhere. So you know, maybe that's not a something that's set in stone. Mm. Um, Australian leaders need to do what's best for Australia, and at, at the point at which our values diverge significantly from uh, a partner, that partner's not a viable partner. Um, so I, I don't think anything is. I want to be Lord, Lord Palmerston here, but you know, we nations have no permanent friends or enemies; they have permanent interests, and we need to be focused on maintaining those. Yeah. Questions? Yes, ma'am. Um, uh, wait for the microphone, please, everybody. There it is. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you talked about um, funding flows. I'm very interested in what are the funding flows for ISIS? Where does it come from, and how can you see those flows? And Will they be perpetuated? Will they be increased? You know, it's a reflection of those interests. I'm interested in the funding uh, issues. So ISIS is extraordinarily different from Al-Qaeda in terms of where it gets its funding from. 
Al-Qaeda got a lot of funding from charities and from uh, wealthy individuals and at one time in its history from governments across the Middle East. Uh, and it also had its own business interests that it used to generate um, uh, funding, primarily before 9-11. And then a lot of that went away after 9-11. Most of ISIS's funding has actually come from the territory that it controls and its taxation programs, where it taxes its population, and its businesses, where, for example, it sold water and electricity to the Syrian regime, it traded oil on the international market, um, ISIS has often been described as trading in stolen antiquities. That's actually not quite true. What they do is they tax uh, freelancers who do that trade. So there aren't like ISIS operators who, who specialise in digging up ruins. What they do is they tax up to 80% uh, individuals who they then let operate in their own territory. So it's more like a, a state right, than, than, than like a terrorist organisation. Um, in terms of funding in the West, which is what I was talking about, we see um, criminal activities, bank robbing, uh, drug smuggling, petty crime being used to fund uh, groups that are involved in some of this activity. We also see individual small donations happening and some of that is online. Um, you can actually go on some of these sites, watch a video and then click a button and, 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 and go and donate. Um, that's much less common than it used to be, primarily because we've got better at cracking down on that, but it still is a significant part of the funding. So very different from how Al-Qaeda was and more state-like in the, in the way that it approaches itself. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, there is one. Very interesting. Thank you very much for your speech, David. Um, of course, in hindsight, you would say we made a mistake going into Iraq and Libya and all these things in the first place. Do you agree with that in hindsight? But in your commentary, you didn't mention the Turkish situation and the complication where it straddles east and west, uh, it allegedly is aligned with our coalition forces, but is against one of our major supporters in terms of the Kurds, Kurds who are doing the ground forces. How, the, how does that all play out in this mix of things? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I don't actually have to go in hindsight. I, I actually opposed the invasion of Iraq at the time, but not that that really mattered because I was a, a mid-ranking officer in the army, not a, not a senior policymaker. The other thing is I was a, one of the Army's uh, experts in counterinsurgency and unconventional warfare. So when the counterinsurgency experts tell you if you invade Iraq, there's going to be a major insurgency, the response is, well, of course you think that. You're a counterinsurgency guy, right? Um, so, um, but I'll tell you, I, I was in some of the planning for Iraq uh, in 2002 and early 2003. There was a particular meeting where a very senior elected official came to the meeting and said, Australia. from Australia, and um, we were talking about the likelihood of the invasion. And I thought to myself, look, I'm never gonna have a better opportunity than now. And so I put my hand up and I knew this um, official and said, look, sir, why are we doing this? You know, like, what, what's in it for Australia? Why are we doing it? What's the point? Why are we not doubling down on Afghanistan? Why are we going into Iraq? And he said, look, Dave, you're asking the wrong question. He said, the, the question is not, should Australia invade Iraq? The question is, the Americans are invading Iraq, should Australia be in that or not? And he said, you know, when you ask the question that way, it answers itself. And I, I think he was right. I think we, we, we were gonna have to be in that or walk away from this alliance structure that we've just talked about. But I do think that the UK, Australia, some of the other countries that were in the initial invasion, looking back now would say, we probably should have used our leverage while we had it um, to try to influence the plan a bit more than we actually did. Uh, 
I think Libya was different. Libya was a case of goalposts shifting after the initial intervention. Um, UNSCA 1973, the, the UN Security Council resolution authorizing the intervention in, in Libya specifically bans ground troops and says that it's only humanitarian and will not involve regime change. And that was a specific deal negotiated by Hillary Clinton and Vice President Biden with the Russians to prevent them from vetoing the Security Council resolution. As soon as we began the intervention, that all went out the window. We killed Gaddafi. Um, she happened to be on TV when news of his death came and she said in a very triumphal fashion, um, we came, we saw, he died. Russian military modernization and the move into Syria began that week, right? So the Russians were certainly very offended by our reneging on the deal. So I think that was a different kind of a problem. Um, I'm sorry, I blanked Turkey. it. Turkey, yeah. Um, you, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure you've been to Turkey. The, the Turks have an extraordinarily dif difficult set of circumstances. They've got a majority Sunni population, which is partly being affected by the spillover of radicalism from ISIS. They also have been massively affected by the spillover of refugees and asylum seekers for years and have been saying ever since 2011 that Assad's regime is the real problem, that we need to be focusing on ending the war in Syria first and dealing with ISIS as a secondary issue. If we'd have listened to them in 2011, we wouldn't be here now. There would not be an ISIS in Iraq if we'd have um, focused on preventing it from, from building up in, uh, uh, in uh, Syria. Right, it's hard to remember now, but right before the Russian intervention, there was also a Turkish proposal which had some legs and may well have developed if the Russians hadn't intervened, which was to create a humanitarian safe zone in northern Syria um, to push down in a sort of box-shaped uh, area about 100 miles into Syria, create a safe zone, not a no-fly zone, a humanitarian safe zone, partly in their case to relieve pressure on Turkey and allow some of the refugees to go back into Syria, but also to create, and this is the second issue for them, to create a buffer between their territory and the territory of what's now emerging as a de facto independent Kurdistan across Iraq and Syria. And that's a major geopolitical threat. So the, the, the Turks, I think, see the Russians, the Iranians, the Kurds, and ISIS as all parts of the threat spectrum. And ISIS is by far not the most dangerous as far as they're concerned. I'd argue that probably the Kurds are more dangerous to them. We in America and Australia like the Kurds, but mainly because they haven't been shooting at us for the last 10 years. But actually, um, they are that the Kurdish national project, if we call it that, is as destabilizing to the geopolitics of the Middle East as anything we've seen from ISIS. Very different in its content. You know, we're not talking about jihadists here, but it's unraveling a system that's been in place, you know, for um, for 100 years. And I think Turks are ex extraordinarily well, indeed. But the Turks are very worried about the impact of that on their own Kurdish population and on the the secular nature of the state. Yeah, just someone there. Yeah. Thanks, David. Perhaps a more broader question. Um, you, you've talked a lot about the foreign policy consensus in, in the United States between the Republican and the Democratic Party. And I think as someone who's sort of had the career in, in the military and academia and, and in government, um, how do you think we can encourage a greater diversity in the foreign policy in, um, and defence establishment to avoid sort of mistakes, as you've discussed in in the strategy that we've been pursuing in the Middle East. Um, uh, I guess it's an interesting thing that despite the US having a much more developed system of, of think tanks and, and, and foreign policy experts, we've still got that 
broad consensus. So I'd be interested in your thoughts if there's any anything we should be doing to sort of encouraging a, a thousand flowers blooming, so to speak. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I was struck when Iraq began and the American um, foreign policy establishment rallied to put people on the ground for the coalition provincial, provisional authority, that many of the people who knew Iraq best were not asked to be part of that. And the people that ended up dominating it was the Europeanists, right? So um, the elite of the American foreign policy establishment through the Cold War were the people that specialized in the central front, so-called, right? Worrying about the Fulda Gap and, and Europe and, and NATO and so on. And when the time came, many of those who knew the region best had opposed the war in Iraq, along with virtually every counterinsurgency and guerrilla warfare specialist. And so they didn't participate. They weren't asked, but they also probably wouldn't have volunteered to be part of the effort. And instead, what she got was the guys like Bremer, who'd been the, uh, Paul Bremer, the, the um, CPA head, who'd been the uh, ambassador to Denmark, right? And that was, his, that was his only ambassadorial experience, didn't speak any regional languages, hadn't spent any time there. Um, went in there unsurprisingly with uh, a frame of reference that didn't fit particularly well with the environment. Um, this is gonna be a slightly wonkish point. My academic background is political anthropology. And uh, you know, I did my PhD on, on Indonesian Islamic terrorism. I finished it six weeks before 9-11. Um, I spoke several regional languages. I spent multiple years living and working in the region. Uh, I had a series of networks of individuals who I spoke to. Uh, and so I came out of what you might describe as a qualitative area studies background. Many people in the foreign policy establishment don't come, in the States anyway, don't come out of that background. They come from international relations theory, um, which is like economics without any reference to reality. Um, and they come out of um, a very quantitative approach to political science. And I think reintroducing area studies and reintroducing the requirement that if you're going to pass judgment on the politics of a country, maybe you should have actually spent a day there and be able to speak the language. You know, um, I think those kinds of basic requirements would do a lot to uh, reintroduce a bit of, um, uh, of diversity. That said, you know, one of the things I learned very closely working for Condi is the incredible role of the president in foreign policy. The president has much less power in domestic politics than people think, and much more uh, influence in foreign policy than many presidents realize, actually, when they first come in. Uh, and uh, President Bush's problem, I think, was that he delegated, and he probably doesn't care what I think about it, but he delegated um, too much to uh, people like uh, Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld, the Vice President of the Secretary of Defense, and didn't take control of a lot of what was going on directly in his own hands. The unsung hero of the surge in 2007 in Iraq was not Dave Petraeus, it was George Bush, who actually took control personally and had daily phone calls, weekly video conferences, knew the detail, was across everything, he was running it himself. Um, and it was when he changed his approach that things changed. President Obama's been the opposite. He's tended to control things very tightly in his own hands and amongst a very small group of advisors and not delegate at all to the, to the departments. And we've seen both those approaches not work particularly well. So I do think one of the other things we need to be doing is structurally rethinking how the national security uh, staff works and putting it back to something like what Eisenhower originally envisaged, which was bringing the entire staff of Supreme Allied Powers Europe and just putting it in, in, in the White House. We've got time for probably one, maybe two quick questions. Yes. Thank you, David. Uh, Paul Nettlebeck. Uh, you touched on uh, 
this time as the low point in US engagement globally. Is there any other hopes, apart from Russia, um, particularly now that the UN has a new Secretary General, or are they a toothless tiger, which is just a waste of time and money in uh, solving some of these problems? You mean are there alternatives to the United States in terms of options for global leadership? Yes, absolutely there are alternatives. Um, we may not like them though, right? I mean, those alternatives are the Chinese, the Russians, the Saudis, um, you know, ISIS, you know, there are, there are alternatives. Um, I think um, to some extent people ta have taken, including Americans, have taken US global leadership for granted and would be, I think, unpleasantly surprised to see what the world looks like when it doesn't have that level of, of, of US engagement. One last question, Ms. Mayor. Uh, thank you. Um, David, you mentioned that the Iranians you feel are significant players, but you didn't really um, expand on that. Um, and I'm particularly interested in the fact that um, the sectarian nature of um, the division in the Middle East between Sunnis and Shias, and particularly between Iran and, um, and, and the Saudis, um, it, it seems to have a, a terrific potential. It does, um, and I apologize for not getting into it in more detail. Um, I think one of the worst things that happened at any time since 9-11 was the access of evil speech, um, which was George Bush's um, State of the Union. January 2002. 2002 where he came up with this idea largely on the fly within 24 hours before the speech of linking Iran, Iraq and North Korea into a so-called axis of evil. The Iranians up to that point had actually been cooperating with us in Afghanistan. Um, many of the Al-Qaeda leaders from Afghanistan who had fled into Iran after the invasion had been locked up by the Iranians. Uh, and there was some... Uh, there was an ongoing series of talks, which were secret at the time, but have since been talked about, um, that were really aimed at trying to carve out a co collaborative approach. When that speech happened, the Iranians basically said, well, that's it. Um, and when we invaded Iraq a few months later, or a, a, year, a year and a bit later, we put them into an extraordinarily dangerous situation where they had US-led intervention forces on their eastern and western borders, and they had us describing them as the axis of evil, and talking to some extent, you saw people like Charles Krauthammer talking about this after the invasion of Iraq, saying, you guys are next. And the Russian, uh, sorry, the, the Iranian intervention in both Afghanistan, which doesn't get talked about very much, and in Iraq, happened largely from a defensive mindset to try to create enough of a bandwidth challenge to us to make it hard for us to then carry out that threat of regime change uh, in Iran. And that's been a driving factor for them, uh, both in Iraq, and in Afghanistan, and in their drive to get nuclear weapons, because that's the ultimate, you know, as, as, as the North Koreans demonstrate, that's your ultimate guarantee about not getting subjected to regime change. Uh, so I think the Iranian approach initially was very defensive. What's happened since the Iranian nuclear deal is that there's a flood of money coming back into the uh, Iranian economy. The Iranians have, have been, uh, have come out from under a lot of the sanctions uh, issues. It's much easier for them to move around regionally. And we're now seeing very large-scale Iranian intervention in both uh, Iraq and Syria. And I'm not talking about one or two advisors, right? We're talking about hundreds of plane loads of troops and uh, money and weapon systems and you know organised units. Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force, which is the um, sort of somewhere between the special forces and the CIA and the Iranian structure, is very publicly running around uh, the outskirts of Mosul right now, rallying the troops. You know, this is. These guys have become really significant regional players. 
I think we've got to figure out how to deal with that as we find it and not try to go back to something that existed before the nuclear deal. Um, but I think, uh, you know, the, as you said, the threat of Iran is much more serious than the threat of ISIS in the eyes of many regional players, Turkey, um, Jordan, uh, Israel, um, uh, the Saudis. And so you've got to deal with that. Otherwise, you're going to be asking people to fight our enemy rather than the people that they see as a significant threat. But then to be a devil's advocate, many of the Sunni uh, Gulf allies of the Americans, the Saudi Arabia, Turkey, have uh, been accused by uh, Joe Biden, among others, of aiding and abetting many of the Sunni jihadists. Yeah. I think there's certainly some data, and I won't get into it here, that suggests that some of that at least is true. Um, uh, you didn't mention the country that specifically people worry about. But um, I think we, uh, there's certainly some truth to, to the idea that governments are conniving at, at the existence of this group primarily because they're worried about the Iranians. The other thing that you see, and you see this particularly in North Africa, is people saying, oh, you want to be a foreign fighter? You want to travel to Syria? Be my guest, right? <laughs> Leave our country, here's a plane ticket, you know? Uh, and uh, that's sort of, makes sense in the short term, but ultimately it comes back to bite you, as I think people have found in uh, Morocco and, and elsewhere. Well, that, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps things up, the formal proceedings for this evening. On behalf of the Centre for Independent Studies, let me thank uh, the Hilton Hotel for hosting the event this, uh, this evening. And of course, most importantly, Virgin Airlines for their ongoing support for the Lighthouse Lectures. On behalf of the Centre for Independent Studies, thank you very much, David Kilcullen, and thank you all. <laughs>